I enjoy cooking, but I get bored very easily. And so I like to try new recipes. Uh, and much to my uh, mother-in-law's sort of bafflement, I suppose, um, I don't actually regularly go to cookery books. I tend to go online. And my website of choice is uh, BBC Good Food online. Here's a little screenshot coming up. And the reason I love going to this uh, website is because people review the recipes. So if, for example, I was looking for a crazy new way to cook shepherd's pie, I'd type in shepherd's pie, and 36 recipes would come up. Here is just a small selection of them. And you can see here that people rate and review the recipes. So as I clicked through, I could see that shepherd's pie potato had a mere 29 people bothering to review it, which told me quite a lot, and only four stars. Whereas the no-fuss shepherd's pie recipe has 238 people so inspired by what it contained that they were willing to go online uh, and review it. And actually, what's brilliant is that you click on these recipes, and they don't just give you the star rating. They write comments. Uh, and so on this particular recipe, one reviewer said that she added a glass of wine and some extra garlic to her mint, and that made a radical difference. And I thought, noted. Someone else said they added peas. And I thought, wow, life on the edge there, life on the edge. Someone else said that even her seven-year-old son uh, ate it, which tells me that it's probably um, fairly more child-friendly than my recent attempt at a chorizo frittata that I fed to my children, which had them screaming, my lips, my lips are burning. We can take that down now. Um, this is useful stuff. And the reason it's useful is that people have gone before me and they have told me what to expect from these recipes and how to make them better. They have shared the lessons that they have learnt in the kitchen. This comment section is like a guide, helping me ultimately make fewer mistakes and a far tastier shepherd's pie. In the same way, here's the link, today's psalm offers us some advice. In fact, if you look directly under Psalm 32, and I love that this was actually read out by our reader, it tells you both the author, we tend to ignore this bit, the author of David, and it says the words, a maskil. Now, in Hebrew, this word, a maskil, indicates that this psalm contains instructions for us. It's a guide. It's advice on how to make the same mistakes that the author, in this case, King David, made. And before we go into this advice, I'd love us to take a look at verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. It's on page 560 if you've already closed your Bibles. Verse 8 says this, I will instruct you, this is God speaking, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. When I opened my Bible that I had at university, I'd highlighted this verse. Um, and it's a really nicely comforting verse, isn't it? The sort of type of verse that we can turn to in moments of uncertainty and think, it's okay, it's okay, God has promised to guide me. And God does promise that. But here's the thing. Anytime we take a verse out of context, we miss specifically what the verse is referring to. And in this case, God's guidance or part of his guidance has actually already been given to us in this psalm. And one of the clear pieces of guidance that God has given us is this. When we sin, when we mess up, when we miss the mark, we need to be honest with God immediately. And just like any instruction given by God, it is for our good and it is life-giving. So the instruction given today in today's psalm is to be honest with God or to put it another way, 
to confess. To confess. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word confession. Um, I was reminded of an incident I read about a few years ago at Christmas. Um, John Lewis had received this letter from a five-year-old girl. Uh, and this is what the letter says, if you're listening on the table, you can't see. To John Lewis Cambridge, which I like, it's nicely specific. I'm sorry I broke a Christmas bauble on Saturday. It cost two pounds. Here is the money for it. Now, apart from being very sweet, this girl was teaching us some deep theological truths about the nature of confession. This girl had done something wrong, and she was telling someone about it. And here's some things that she tells us about confession. Firstly, confession involves recognizing that your behavior has missed the mark. I broke the bauble. Secondly, she shows us that she has owned up to her behavior. I broke the bauble. Thirdly, she apologizes for her behavior, and she shows repentance. I'm sorry. And finally, and this is really key for us, she understands that her behavior has a cost. It cost two pounds. Someone has to pay for the broken bauble. Thank you, we can remove that. We'll come back to the broken bauble in a bit, but now let's start by looking at the author of this psalm, King David. I'm sure many of you know that this man was literally a legend in his own lifetime. And this is really important for us to understand as we read this psalm. David wasn't just a king. He was a hero. He was anointed by God, someone who had defeated the enemies of God. He'd united the kingdom. His exploits were legendary. In his own lifetime, he was having songs written about him. In fact, that was one of the main reasons that the previous king, King Saul, wanted to king, kill him. David was the golden boy of the nation. And then, at the moment when David should have been out leading his troops in yet another victory against the enemies of God, David sins. And I'm going to briefly recap for you what David does, because it's quite helpful when we think about this psalm. First of all, David sees another man's wife. He covets her. He wants her. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. And then when he can't cover it up, and he does try... He has her husband, Uriah, murdered. And an interesting point that I've just learned this week when studying for this sermon, um, Uriah wasn't just any old person. Uriah was actually one of David's closest and most loyal followers. I don't know if you know, but before David became king, he was a fugitive. He was running away from Saul. He was hiding out. And people went to him to show their support. And he had a band of men around him. They were called his mighty men. These men would do anything for David. They were legendary. They were his most loyal followers. Guess who was one of them? Uriah. Uriah. David didn't just kill some stranger. He killed. He had killed one of his most loyal friends. In a horrendous series of events, David manages to break not one or two but fully half of the commandments in one go, which is quite impressive, isn't it? Half of the commandments in one go. And eventually God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David about his actions, and David realizes his sin. He repents and he writes another psalm, Psalm 51. But this psalm, to know that is really important for this psalm for two reasons. First of all, we need to know that David was open about his sin. Can you imagine David Beckham or the Queen or Theresa May being this open about their misdemeanors? 
No, no way. But David is so open about it that he not only writes a song detailing his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he also writes this song about the importance of owning up, of confessing your sin. And these songs weren't just for him to sing about on his own, strumming a guitar in his room where no one else could hear him. These songs were designed to be sung in public worship. Scholars believe that this psalm was designed to be sung to the congregation, but also by the congregation. They had to sing parts of it back to the leader. Can you imagine those times when David was present in the congregation and this, Psalm 32, was the chosen worship song for the day? Can you imagine? Everyone reciting aloud together, blessed is he whose transgressions are covered and the glances in David's direction, the nudges, the whispers. Well, he must be really blessed. You know his wife Bathsheba? Well, she used to be Uriah's wife. And then David, you'll never guess this, David had him killed. Can you imagine this? And David's there singing these songs. Why on earth was David so keen for the very worst parts of his life to be known and sung about? Because just as he has experienced the utter depravity of his sin, so too had David experienced the utter extravagance of God's grace and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. David was rock solid in his identity. He was a man who had been forgiven by God, and that was his identity, more so than being a king and more so than being a murderous adulterer. David was David the forgiven one. He was the forgiven one. And so he could be incredibly open about what the forgiveness that he had experienced. And knowing the backstory to this psalm is also important for this reason. Everyone sins. All of us, you and I, we all miss the mark. One of the key things that this psalm teaches us is that if someone like David, a man who was called a man after God's own heart, if he was capable of such atrocities, then you and I sure as heck are. We sure as heck are. And the quicker we realize and acknowledge this, the better. As a preacher, I have certain types of Bible passages that I love to preach on. Top of the list are passages about people. I love uh, speaking and preaching about people's stories. I love studying the men and the women of the Bible. Um, but my husband, Tom, is the complete opposite to me. He absolutely hates the stories of people in the Bible. One of his biggest bugbears is this. He says, why... Why on earth are these people held up as examples for us to follow? Some of them, and I'm fairly sure he would include David in this list, are, are just capable of such evil. Why, should, why are they examples for us? Why are they heroes of the faith? And here's the thing. He's right. I recently listened to a sermon by Tim Keller, and he said that the point of the Bible isn't to give us examples of good guys to follow. The point of the Bible is to show us that God continually and persistently works with and gives grace to his people who don't deserve it, King David, and often don't appreciate it either. David grasped this. That's why David could write public songs about his sin, his confessions, and his repentance without fear of shame or reproach. David had grasped the grace of God. So, now that we've looked at a little bit more background to the psalm, let's dive into the detail. And we're going to look at three things about confession. Specifically, we're going to look at why we confess, how we confess, and what happens when we confess. Why, how, and what. First of all, why do we confess? Well, let's cover a few things that confession doesn't do, for start. Confession doesn't have any bearing on our eternal salvation. Okay? 
We do not confess in order to get into a relationship with God. Salvation is a gift of God, and we receive it. We receive it. We can do nothing to earn our salvation. In fact, when writing about whether we can earn our salvation or not, the Apostle Paul quotes this psalm. And he quotes it as an example of someone who has been made righteous apart from works, apart from what he did. Okay, so that's the first thing. Confession doesn't have any bearing on our eternal salvation. Secondly, confession doesn't make God love us or like us any more than he already does. I love the quote which says, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more. And there's nothing that you can do to make God any love you any less than he already does. The cross is the final and definitive example of just how much God loves us. And that does not change. That is not dependent on what we do. All of which, therefore, begs the question, um, if confession doesn't affect our standing with God and it doesn't affect how he feels about us, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why is this a life-giving decision? Well, the answer uh, is in verses 1 and 2. Let's read them together. Uh, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Confession is the way to more blessing and greater intimacy with God. And the opposite is true. The opposite is true. When we don't confess, when we're not honest with God about where we're at and what we're up to, it can feel like a distance is opening up between us and God. Remember, that's not God moving away from us. That's us moving away from God. Look at verse 4 with me. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Maybe this is something you can relate to. Maybe you know in your own heart that there is something that you have done or are repeatedly doing that is in deliberate rebellion against God. Some area of your life that you are unwilling to hand over to God. And maybe, and if you feel like God's hand is on you, I love that description, God's hand is on you then that's fantastic. Why? Because it shows that God is desperate to get back into a closer relationship with you. That's the whole big picture of the Bible. It's all about God wooing us and wanting to get closer and closer to us and wanting to remove anything that's going to get in the way of our relationship with him. And to return to the little girl who confessed to that broken bauble to John Lewis, confession also reminds us that our behavior has a cost. In verses 1 and 2, there are three descriptions of how God deals with our sin. He forgives our sin, which contains the idea of physically removing our sin, bearing it away from us. He covers our sin, which has the idea of hiding it from sight so we no longer have to see it. And finally, he does not count our sin against us, which means God removes the debt of our sin from our account, as it were. Or to put it away, to put it another way, it's as though God looks at us and sees that we as, as though we have never sinned. That's what that idea is there. And I think David is trying to show us that God has fully and comprehensively dealt with all the wrong things that we have done. But as we know, and David didn't yet know because the cross hadn't happened, but as we know, this came at an excruciating cost. So painful was the cost of dealing with all the things that we do wrong that Jesus, as he was preparing to pay the price, begged his father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, I'll do it. 
please don't let me have to go through with this. Please, God, I'm begging you, Father. The pain is so extreme. The price is so high. The depravity that I'm going to have to endure, it's too much. If there's any other way, Father, there must be another way. And the deception of sin, I think, is that it's not hurting anyone. Well, it's only a small sin. It doesn't really count. It's my life. What I do in my own time doesn't really impact anyone. It's my own business. No, no, that's what this psalm teaches us. No, the cost of our sin, the cost of what we do is extreme. And when we confess, when we're honest with God, we remind ourselves of this cost and the severity of our fallen shortness. So that's why we confess. Second point, how do we confess? Take a look with me at verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The meaning behind this word acknowledge is to articulate or to say it out loud. Whereas not confessing sin has that kind of idea of hiding it that we looked at. Confession has the idea of revealing it, of putting it out there in the open, of looking it full in the face, as it were, and owning it. So it means not just generically saying, I have sinned, but being very specific about what it is that we've done. Practically, that can mean that sometimes, sometimes it can be really helpful to articulate this sin to a trusted friend or someone we pray with. And that's because, as we've said before, we can be really good at deceiving ourselves and minimizing our sin. Um, throughout university and for a few years afterwards, I met with a couple of girls on a regular basis to pray and chat. Um, and I remember we'd been praying and chatting for about four years, so we knew pretty much everything there was to know about each other. And there was one particular day when I, I re- it's interesting, this verse, I felt God's hand was on me, and I really felt that there was one area that I just wanted to confess to them. I wanted to say it out loud and, and talk to them about it. But it took a long time to say it out loud. It's really interesting. But actually, when I was able to articulate it, All the secrecy, all the shame, all the feeling of, if someone really knew this about me, then they'd hate me, that vanished. The dark places were flooded with the light of God's grace. It wasn't that my friends could absolve me of my guilt. Christ paid the the price on the cross for me. But they were able to pray with me and remind me of God's promises of forgiveness when we confess. And that leads us, therefore, to the final point. What happens when we confess? Again, verse 5. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. When we confess, God forgives immediately. There is no time lag. Uh, To return to David, when he was confronted by the weight of everything that he'd done, and it was pretty awful, by the prophet Nathan, that's in 2 Samuel 12, if you want to go home later and look it up. David said this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, If it were me, if, you know, hypothetically, I was the prophet Nathan, I'd want to make sure that David really fully understood what he'd done, how awful he'd been. So I'd probably say, yes, yes, you have. You've ruined lives. You've killed good men. You've manipulated. Their blood is on your hands. You have deceived. You've set a poor example. After everything that God's done for you, what do you have to say for yourself? I'd want to make sure that he really was feeling sorry. But interestingly, Nathan doesn't do that. That's probably why he was the prophet and I wasn't. Instead, the moment David says, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan says, 
the Lord has taken away your sin. That can be quite an affront, can't it? When we think about David, I mean, not ourselves, obviously, but when we think about David and how awful he was, it seems a little, I don't know, easy, doesn't it? Immediate forgiveness after everything that he'd done. How is it that God can grant immediate forgiveness no matter what we've done? Eugene Peterson says that immediate forgiveness is only possible because the judge of all the earth who did nothing wrong dies condemned. Jesus was condemned for us. He died for us so that we could be forgiven. This is not cheap grace. It's expensive, but the price has already been paid. When we confess, God forgives immediately. That terrible price for our sins already been paid. And in that way, and here's the interesting thing, confession is actually an act of faith. By confessing to God, we are trusting in God and his promise to forgive us. We are saying, okay, God, okay, you said that when I confess, you are faithful to forgive. So I'm going to trust. I'm going to put all my weight. I'm going to believe on that promise. I'm going to trust you for this forgiveness. But here's the thing, often when I confess, I know in my head that God forgives me, but often I don't feel forgiven. I still feel guilty. I still feel like God is somehow disappointed in me and my actions. And if you can relate to that, take a look at verse 6 with me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely, when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. And some scholars believe that that phrase, when the mighty waters rise, may be referring precisely to those feelings of guilt, that sort of overwhelming, the flood waters rising. You can see that, can't you? And what does our guide David suggest we do in those situations, therefore? We pray. We pray, says David. Let everyone who is godly, everyone who has confessed their sins, pray to you. By praying, we remind ourselves of all that God has done to secure our freedom from guilt. We remind ourselves of God's promises to forgive us. We remind ourselves that without Christ's work, God would have had no choice but to condemn us. But now, now we can run to God. And God is our hiding place. A place of safety, a place of security, a place of freedom. So in this psalm, David is desperate to teach us that when we confess, we confess because it restores our intimacy with God. We confess by articulating what we've done. And when we confess, David says, God promises to forgive us. To finish, I'd like to show you uh, a picture, possibly. Um, uh, I was looking to show you an actual acorn seed. I couldn't find one. So here is a picture of an acorn seed. Now, as seeds go, so I'm told, the acorn seed is pretty hardy. It's got a tough outer shell, but with a bit of work, maybe a knife and a heel, I reckon I could destroy this seed. However, if I planted this seed and let it take root and left it for a year or two, five, 20 years, this seed would be a much harder thing to destroy. Why? Because it would have turned into something else. It would have turned into an oak tree. It would have taken root. 
Why am I finishing with a botany lesson? Because in the same way, in, through this psalm, God calls us to look for any seeds of sin that we are tolerating in our own lives and deal with them before they become rooted. Because that is the way to life. That is the way to blessing. That is the way to abundance. The first step to dealing with sin is to confess it. And this, says God, is the way to life. John Owen, a 17th century theologian, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. David learned how important confession is. May we listen to his wisdom. I'm just going to finish with a prayer. Will you join me in praying? Um, the picture I've got is of someone sort of flinching almost under a light. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who um, feels your hand heavy on them, Holy Spirit, we just come and we, we thank you for that. Thank you that you long to have a relationship with us that it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Thank you that you have so many good plans and purposes for our lives, Lord God. Thank you that your guidance is for our good, even when it can feel penetrating in a bad way. We just ask for the courage to be honest with you, Lord. And let's just take a moment right now. If there is anything that you know that God is wanting you just to, to confess to him, just confess that to him now. Get it out in the open. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Father, thank you that you, because of what Jesus has done for us, you can grant us immediate forgiveness. And we praise you for the freedom and the peace and the joy that comes with that. Help us to live our lives basking in your freedom and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.